0: Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, I'm going to get us started, even though we're not all completely settled. Um, my name, good morning. Uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles, and in my role here at WAP, I get to host this wonderful um, seminar. So here at WAP, we are uh, we aspire to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education, and the role of this seminar toward that um, vision is connecting our community with uh, cutting edge research um, related to uh, both uh, gender public policy and uh, women's leadership advancement. And um, I'm just going to do my uh, quick business before I get to introduce our speaker, I'm very excited about introducing. Um, one is as we sit in the seminar room, obviously, we're going to turn off um, cell phones and things like that. Um, but also that we ask that um, when you participate, uh, when you contribute, that you're actually asking a question and that the question relates to the presentation of the speaker. It's pretty straightforward, but it's also important because we're, as, while we're just sitting now in a small seminar room, we're actually also participating in this seminar are all the people who will um, download the podcast from this um uh, of today's uh, presentation, and now we have had uh, tens of thousands of downloads of these presentations. So we welcome our virtual community uh, as well. Um, uh, Professor Shauna Shames is uh, in the is from the Political Science Department at uh, Rutgers University, Camden. Um, she is a long loved member of the WAP community. Uh, she did her PhD in government. Um, from Harvard University. Um, she does a lot of work. Um, and she was one a real leader in looking at um, intersections of gender and race, which we've been trying to get to more and more in this seminar. But she was really one of the leading thinkers around this, saying that we just need to be having um, this conversation. She's received multiple awards and research grants, and her, pu- and her research is published in numerous journals. Um, and, uh, I just I could keep talking so I'm not going no, to be an unkind subject to the presentation <laughs> and just the humor on this slide alone mm-hmm. gives you a sense of how much fun we're gonna have in this conversation. So please uh, <laughs> <celebrate>. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. Oh I hope we have fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a, hopefully we'll get to this in the Q&A. It's not in my slides as much because I've been doing this research for several years, but I think this is a moment, kind of nationally, internationally, where we're recognizing and uh, kind of there's a visceral need for women's voices in the public sphere. And uh, you know I just, I'm so excited to think about how we can capitalize on that. But my research strikes a rather somber note, though, which is that. For marginalized peoples thinking about entering a formal sphere like politics, there's a lot of barriers. And uh, we have a lot of explanations about why more women don't run. And I think all of them are good and important. Uh, I take a little bit of a different approach than some of the existing research, as you'll see, because I do not in any way think women lack ambition (laughs) or confidence. I think they are highly strategic and highly rational. So I'm going to tell you about my research takes kind of a cost and a benefits framework. Uh, so this will give you a sense of some of the costs. Let me tell you a little bit about me. So I come out of a kind of a feminist activist background. I've worked for various women's feminist groups um, in the US in both New York and Washington, including now where I, I was both on staff and on the um, board of directors. So feminist activism uh, very close to my heart. I'm also a former PhD student right here. Well, uh, a little further up at the Department of Government. So this is me writing my dissertation. (laughs) This is so for the graduate students in the room, it's possible. This is the amount of candy it took to finish the dissertation. These are my wonderful, two of my wonderful advisors. And this is the book that resulted, which came out uh, 2016, sorry. January of 2017. Oh, I got my unbooked date wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, it came out basically a year ago. It was based on my dissertation. And the idea, it's called Out of the Running, Why Millennials Reject Political Careers and Why It Matters. The interesting thing is that I really started with a gender-based and a race-based question about why more women and people of color don't run for political office. And the more I studied it, the more I realized that gender and race, Well, powerful were not, I thought, the central driving factors, right? The central driving problem is that we've made running for office terrible (laughs) for everybody. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, To do the dissertation, what I did is I uh, thought about kind of what would be the ideal sample of people I could look at. And one of the hardest things in social science (laughs) is to figure out how do you study something that doesn't happen? Right. So women and people of color not running for office, it's very hard to see. So I thought about some of the previous uh, great research on this. Lawless and Fox have done a lot about women not running. And they look at kind of adult professionals at the top of their careers in certain fields that are feeders into politics, in particular law. And so I thought, okay, that's a cool thing. But I really think that beliefs or expectations about politics Uh, Or, kind of, any of the factors that might make you not want to run will come in earlier in life. And can I study those upstream? So, what I did is I looked at law and policy school students right here at the Kennedy School. Uh, I looked at Harvard Law School, Harvard Kennedy School, and Suffolk Law School. And I chose those places deliberately. The two Harvard schools are the the kind of largest feeders into national level politics. And here in Massachusetts, Suffolk Law School is the modal degree of uh, uh, the the state legislators with a law degree, uh, which was a very large percentage. So these seem to be the feeder institutions. And what I was looking for was the the tough case. (laughs) Where could we find the people who should be most interested in running for office? And then why would or wouldn't they run? That will tell us something important. So when I was, I I did, um, so I got about 800 people who took my, it was an online survey I did. uh, And then I did follow-up interviews, about 52 um, hour-long interviews. And uh, one of the, so this this represents the idea, I would ask uh, these students in the interviews to tell me, I said, do you happen to know what the current percentage women or minorities is? Uh, in politics or at our national level. And of course, nobody wants to admit that they don't know. So they would say various things. And so uh, a white male Suffolk University law student, he didn't know, but he said, yeah, well, I know it's not where it should be. And that intrigued me. So I said, where should it be? (laughs) And he thought about that. And he said, well, let's put it this way. It'd be really great if I could walk into a room composed of my elected officials and not have the very first thought be Whoa, that's a lot of white dudes. <laughs> right? So this is the 2012 State of the Union, which is when I was doing the research. I say, by his proposed test, we are failing. <laughs> um, I like to say when I speak that we're at something of a crossroads. Right? We're, we are caught between a need and a desire for more women's voices in public uh, institutions, in political institutions, but also an increasing understanding of the difficulties that women face when they step up. And I think a lot about um, Virginia Woolf, who is not an American political scientist in any way, (laughs) but is my guide in all things. Uh, In 1937, in Three Guineas, was writing about uh, the status of women, she thought, at the time. And she felt like women were poised on a bridge halfway between the public house and the private house. Right. And lo, these many decades later, I think we are still there. We're on that. Bridge. So these are the current proportions. Well, current does of a couple years ago, but we haven't moved too far of women in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, right? There's vast underrepresentation. Uh the gaps in participation are not interestingly in voting or volunteering. There's been great political science work on those. Uh the biggest gaps are in running for office and donating money. Virginia Wolf also explains that, as she says. Why have men always been so rich and women so poor? Right? So the access to resources, and then particularly that affects running for office is one of the biggest gaps. But running for office and deciding to run, particularly in an American context in which you have to self-identify. We don't have the same kind of party institutions that will do the recruiting work that other comparable democracies do. Oh, and this is kind of the, if we look at it over time, this is a wonderful Washington Post graphic. Uh, so, from the 20th Congress to, no, you know, up in the 110s, uh, you can see kind of the, not just the vast underrepresentation, but the historical dominance of men over time. Uh, oh, probably I don't need to explain to this group why we care. And yet, sometimes it's useful to, um, to have it uh, kind of um, laid out succinctly, right? So I hardly need to tell you, but if it's useful to you as advocates, there's at least five really good reasons that women in politics scholars talk about why we need women in office, right? And we talk about these. These could be both intrinsic and instrumental reasons for wanting women to be there at the tables. The most important reason, of course, is if you've spent any time in D.C., you know, if you're not at the table, you are on the menu. But. Um, <laughs> But the, the reasons that we've developed, theoretically, would be uh, some simple justice, that about 20% women as political leaders, whereas women are 51% of the population is simply unfair. Right? As an advocate working in women's organizations, although to me this is the most important reason, it is often the least effective. Right? So you might want to get sometimes to the instrumental reasons. Right? So the, um, the policy implications of having women there. Uh, Women in office, uh, we've learned, are generally better at legislating, right? They are more effective legislators. There's also policy implications in terms of the types of policies that legislatures take up and deal with and how they deal with the policies. So questions that might have been considered before purely private, things about domestic violence, uh, things about reproduction, Um, Breast cancer, things that deal particularly with uh, women, you often don't get action until you have women in the legislatures. Um, Issues affecting not just women, but children, families, uh, communities. Uh, My old boss at the White House Project, Marie Wilson, likes to say, women in politics make a better world for everyone. There's also implications for women's relationship with their government. So there's some suggestion from various studies that there's greater trust, maybe greater efficacy, uh, feelings of you can make a difference in politics for women as citizens when they see women uh, at the tables. There's a role model argument. Marie <coughs> Wilson would also say you can't be what you can't see. right? So the idea of where if we have a lack of women visible in politics, it ends up being a negative feedback cycle where other women may not run because they don't see it. And then lastly, back to my favorite Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf imagines uh, that Shakespeare had a sister. So I call this the losing talent argument. She said, what if Shakespeare had a sister, Judith Shakespeare, who was just as brilliant, just as uh, kind of important to humanity as William, right? But imagine if Judith left home at 16 to go run away and join the London stage. Yeah. Virginia Woolf does not imagine a really happy future for poor Judith. <laughs> you can read about it, it's highly tragic. Right. But we're losing talent that we desperately need in politics. All right. All of this suggests we need women for lots of really good reasons. Uh, We need women of color, especially right now, I think. Women of color, to my mind, are the future uh, of this country. But unfortunately, as you'll see from my data, it is the group least interested and least likely to want to run for (coughs) office. All right. So. It brings me to the question, so if we need women, right? the problem is that the the need is systemic, but it relies on individual women stepping forward. And the individual barriers often fall very hard on the shoulders of these individuals. In particular, in the American context, what you need to be a candidate most of all is political will, or what we call political ambition. (laughs) So Joseph Schlesinger suggested ambition lies at the heart of politics. So the question for me is, why do some people kind of run toward office, and other people run screaming in the opposite direction? So I've got this sample. It's, I should have put the N on here. It ended up being about 760 usable responses out of 800 I collected. So it's a pretty good sample. It was a very diverse sample, more than a third people of color, because I wanted to study race as well as gender. And it was half women, and the first question, well, there were lots of questions. But one of the first questions is, uh, would you consider yourself an ambitious person? right? And I don't even have a slide to show you that, because 95% of all of these incredibly bright and ambitious young people called themselves ambitious. Right? There was no variation in the data among calling yourself ambitious if you're at Harvard Law School, Harvard Kennedy School, or Suffolk Law School. But there is high variation in, have you ever thought seriously of running? for office. So the uh, lighter uh, bars here are the men, the darker bars are the women, and this is within the various racial groups that I had enough N in the sample to combine. So you can see just enormous gender gaps in all racial groups on this question, would you consider running for office? And this is just the present, yes. So. What do we know from the literature, right? That there's kind of several classes of barriers. So structural, yes, please.
0: Can we reflect on that post bars for a second before you all you means. Know, are you gonna talk
1: more about this? Yes. Okay,
0: okay, you're gonna go back to like the the
1: like like the gap. What do you wanna know? I'll well, like tell people. you if I'll talk about it. I'm just one thing is like. This is not out of line with previous research. Right, well, I'm, just, I'm, like, I'm kind of like fascinated but that yeah.
0: minority men want to run yeah. it, with a greater frequency right. than white men. And then the other thing that's like yeah. kind of killing me is. Also, the ends statement. here are
1: a little smaller, so there's greater variation right, okay. Okay. in okay. these groups. Okay. But still, when I, hear about the minority men in particular, when I aggregated minority men versus white men, it is like it approaches statistical significance that this difference is.
0: Okay, 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 okay,
1: so it's not quite. It's not quite real, but it is almost, it was like P equals .075. It was almost a real difference, and so I thought a lot about that. I think it's not a reflection, this is a highly unrepresentative sample. So I think this is not a reflection of minority men in the country in general, you shouldn't think of it that way. What you should think is, boy, are these a strange kind of unrepresentative group of people who get to these schools. And the, um, the men seem to be less representative than the women because there's a higher proportion of women, minority women, at these schools than men. Oh, there are a higher proportion. There there oh, that Particularly itself. law American. school, right. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to figure out for the black men in particular, what might this be? I was doing this um, research 2010 to 2012, so part yeah. of this might be an Obama effect. Part of right. it might also be.
0: I I mean, know, I know. Yeah, so um, uh, part well, of, it could be the filter effect, right? So I was thinking about it, that. It is like a these, highly these,
1: selected sample.
0: Yeah, but but also yeah. like like these these findings that like women are better leaders than men or yep. like women are better legislators. I always yeah. think, well, yeah, but they they had to run a fiercer gauntlet. Like like like, like yeah. they they got culled a lot more yeah. aggressively than the men did. So yeah. you probably just have like a more average selection. That's of, exactly. Probably a more average selection of whites than you do of minorities here. Yeah. So it just maybe it actually. Like a lot of saying, this could be in a selection effect. It, yeah, it makes you
1: wonder why that doesn't happen for the minority women. Well, this much. is
0: killing me. I know. The,
1: yeah. The, the, right. the, and
0: okay. is that difference significant? The Hispanic and yeah. Asian versus yeah. white and
1: yeah. I mean that's just uh, that one is different. I have a, a bit of an explanation for that a little bit later. Yeah. Okay. Good. Which, I'm just like, yeah. is, sorry. No, I'm mulling some of this and trying to think. Uh, you know, can I do some separate articles that might help explain? Some of this, and also some of the kind of intra women of color racial groups, but the ends are getting fairly small. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a well, real. You're difference. just used to this, like I, I know it's that's like, true. so cool, and yeah, that <laughs> is very
0: interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, to study this intersectionally turned out to be like, you know, I know why people don't do it. Yeah, it's exactly. really difficult. I had to recruit. You know, kind of um, separately to get more people of color, and it also makes you worry about. Then, is that separate recruitment getting a more selected sample? Um,
2: yeah, I have a question. Please. But couldn't it also be that for each of those groups, they, that given they're ambitious, yeah, what are all of the other things they can do that's exactly. and have the same
0: impact in the world? Mm-hmm. Oh, so they may feel like doors are closed. No, there may be other, other doors than... that
2: are easier for them to. In, if impact is the, if ambition and impact are related, yeah, yeah. and I'm an Asian woman, would I want run to run for office in the U.S. Right or would I champion women in the technology sector and well, removing is, the divide? You know, the it's a matter yeah, of yeah, what yeah, options yeah. there are The yeah, second best yeah, yeah. to whatever yeah. this question yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. So, opportunity
1: yeah. cost is how yes. we think of it. Yes. So when we yes. get to the cost and the benefits framework, that's exactly the right question to ask. Also, I'll, I'll preview for you the findings of, about these people in particular. Mm. The opportunity cost of a private sector salary, I think, played a large role, because one of the things about the people of color in the sample is they were so much more likely to say, I have an expectation of having to contribute money in the future to my family of origin, oh, yeah. right? So that although being here at these institutions to some extent wipes out some of the, I think, worst effects of the the kind of class segregated world that we, that we live in racially in this country, it was still true that the people of color came from Different socioeconomic kind of strata, and that they kind of be being at Harvard or being the first in their family to go to law school, they had felt an expectation to then make a lot of money so they could contribute to their. Well, family.
3: I think another could
1: be so that lots of opportunity. A lot of the
2: political was. people who are in political office, their parents or uncles or somebody was
0: yeah. in yeah. political office. That yeah. That's it's why they choose. So, exactly in, in this
2: group of people, this, this new generation that you're trying to target, the women or the
1: minority
2: women, Yeah. what is the likelihood that
3: their
1: parents were in a public office in the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, in the interviews in particular, I had people saying to me all the time, oh, no, politics is for rich people, or politics is for well-connected people. But my feeling was kind of like, well, you're at Harvard Law School. If it's not you, who is it? right? That I found that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I, I get that point about wealth and sort of financial background, but I
4: think for a lot of students,
3: Oh,
1: yeah. and that could, <laughs> there's you know, that, right. And that could obviously be an incredible exciting factor. And, like, Highest exciting in the nation, mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, except for one, apparently. I just heard about the uh, uh, And a lot uh, of these schools our... don't have like a great, you know, scholarship yeah.
4: programs, and a lot of students yeah. who do are the first in their family to go to, it's students, exactly. to, go to school, but a
1: lot of school so I know, right. right. I've been thinking about that a lot. And the interesting thing is the gender difference is still present. So there's cross pressures about. Class and race and gender that I haven't totally untangled. But this is exactly because I'm asking all the right questions that I'm trying to figure out. Uh, Structurally, yeah. Do
0: you think it's legitimate to only measure
1: um, being in politics as running for office? No. No. So I'm just wondering if there's a difference in the IOP undergraduate Mm -hmm. breakfast. Excellent. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm not sure that all, they all want to be in course. but I'm not sure they all want to, you know, working at the White House, running an agency. Yeah. So, and I don't
1: know this is a highly weird thing to do in that, right? So uh, I'm just particularly interested in it because that's where the the gender gap is most significant, but this is a great point. (coughs) One of the things I had people do in the interviews, I would say, could you just define to me what politics is? right? What do you mean by politics? And I learned a lot about how they think of it, right? And one of the most important, I think it's a huge problem, one of the most important things I learned, one of those critical problems is that Generally, women are far less likely to think that electoral politics can solve problems, right? And they want to make change in the world, right? People want their lives to have purpose. If you don't believe electoral running for office is going to do it, it's really rational not to want to. Uh, all right, so the way I put this, oh, structural. The, one of the most important things also to think about is structurally, we have what amounts to a glass ceiling for women in politics through incumbency? Right? If 95%, 90 ish percent of uh, incumbents win their re-elections, and you know, 80%-ish of incumbents are male, it amounts to, um, Hallmer and Simon call this kind of a glass ceiling for women in politics. Laura Liswood, who founded the Council of Women World Leaders, likes to say, I'm not sure there is a glass ceiling for women in politics. She says, I think it's just a thick layer of men. <laughs> Uh, also structural, which should be noted, is we're still not equal in terms of roles that people serve in household economies, right? So that work-family conflict continues to structure women's lives in a different way than, than men does. Right. There's lots of other structural things, but let's just jump right <laughs> in. Yeah, you guys are interested in my data. I'll tell you more about it. The way I think about it is I, I, I develop um, kind of this idea of what I call candidate deterrence candidate deterrence, as in you're deterred from wanting to run, happens, and I did this fairly quantitatively, the question is, if you look at the rewards and the costs of running for office, and you compare them, and you can do that quantitatively if you've got a lot of variables in a survey, are the rewards worth more than the costs? And for most people, the cost versus rewards ratio was about zero, (laughs) right? The mean in the sample as a whole was right around the zero line. And for women, it was behind the zero line, right? It was more costly to run for office than it was rewarding in terms of their expectations and their perceptions. And some of these costs that I asked about were things like um, invasion of privacy could be considered a cost, particularly if you think your family's privacy is going to be invaded. Uh, the, the role of money. And not just, and there were several kind of aspects of the role of money in campaigns, right? The idea that first of all, you have to ask people for money, and if you take into account Virginia Wolf and the historical distribution of wealth, such that women have not been the ones to own it, really, it, it can feel like begging, or it can feel icky, or it can feel <laughs> like not wanting to ask. That can affect women differently than men. I had a, you know, Harvard Law School students say. I don't even like you know, when my parents, I'm going home and my parents try to shove 40 bucks in my pocket when I get on the bus, so I don't even like to take it. So the idea of asking for hundreds or thousands of dollars to run, for, that could be very hard. But for everybody also, there was um, a different kind of icky factor, ickiness, about not just asking <laughs> for money, but accepting it. right? The sense that that reflected a compromise of your values. So, that not the asking, the accepting, feeling um, slightly dirty, right, all of these con- could be considered costs. Uh, increasing use of social media everywhere, such that everything you do is under such intense scrutiny. And we know that women are held to a higher standard. Women know that they will be held to a higher standard. They actively anticipate discrimination. I get this from the work of your fearless leader here. Um, but the active anticipation of discrimination, higher scrutiny, uh, kind of uh, that everything you say, you know, everything you do and say will be watched. Uh, the exacerbated role of money. And then increasing polarization, the idea that uh, even if you get in, what your ability to make that kind of change might be limited because of the, the gridlock environment, the hyperpartisan kind of polarization that we find ourselves in. It adds up to, uh, you know, Compared with not a lot of sense of you're going to go to Washington and do something really great. John, I have a question about that. Please.
4: Um, So, Harvard Law School graduates fairly left of center lawyers. This is just factually true. Yeah. Which means that they would be more likely to be running as Democrats from blue states, which tend to be larger population states. Yeah. So, they're just sort of, um, if women women tend to be more left of center, which is a reasonable assumption, I think. I wonder if like some of the differences in those bar plots that you put up could be attributed to kind of those ideological differences. Right. So if I yeah. am faced with the option of running from uh, California, New York and Massachusetts right. versus my male colleague who can go to South Dakota or Montana or Wyoming. Yeah. Right, there's there's a much higher chance for him to be successful than there would be for me running in a state with forty million
1: people. Right? Do you think that that might be part of the story? Maybe. But you could also think Women have a better chance of winning in those states. Also, mm. it's a it's a great. I hadn't I mean, California it. has like three. California like, has what a higher proportions of yeah, women both in the a, state legislature exactly. and nationally. So, and two female senators. Right, yeah, there is some evidence, not from my research, but um, uh, Palmer and Simon have evidence of what they call women friendly districts. Mm-hmm. Right, there's characteristics of congressional districts that make them more women friendly, and being Democrat is part, not all of it, but part of it. Um, and a whole cluster of things that are associated with the, kind of the Democratic Party, also. Yeah, I guess I just I know, <coughs> it, might, it might be an empirical <coughs> question. Well, could I think wash it might out. because I, I just yeah. wonder if you have enough Republican women in your yeah, this is, <laughs> because, this because you're problem. conditioning on a very liberal space. Uh, being here in there the were Cambridge. not, there were some, but not enough. Uh, you know, I think I I included party in regression analysis and it didn't do much. But it's it's not a um, huge amount of variation. I think there might have been 200 in the, you know, almost 800-person sample that put themselves in the more conservative group, and of those, they were more male than female. So, yeah, not as much. Uh, because of the, I just did a um, edited a book on Republican women specifically. Though, one of the most interesting things that happened. Um, Danielle Thompson at Syracuse does some cool work on this. Is that Republican women kind of actively select out of candidate pools? Um, when things like uh, you know kind of the Tea Party's um, the Tea Party's ability to uh, actively eliminate moderates, right, through mm-hmm. primaries, uh, starts to play into the equation. The primary process is one of the most important things that is keeping Republican women from running right now, just like we found in this new clip. Somebody mm-hmm. has a question. Yeah. Yes. Oh,
3: oh, so mm-hmm. um so you mentioned that
1: you did the interviews during the yeah. And i was wondering whether you, you would see it change now, right? Because yes, You are dem- <laughs> Democratic women during the Obama administration. Oh, yes. Trump wins. Yes. And we're seeing this wave of activism, absolutely, absolutely. Really sweeping, right? And you're seeing unprecedented numbers of women running. Yes. So how do you square that? Yes. With what your such a great question. With your
0: book. Can I, yeah, I know. This, this is where I have to do a little fancy footwork, because
1: I published this book. You know, Trump gets elected. I published this book saying a lot of women have really good reasons not for wanting to run. And then suddenly, more women than ever are running. So if you hold on to that, I do have an answer, I promise. But let's, let me get through the book data. So there's some wonderful qualitative data about some of these costs that might deter you from running for office. So uh, Jasmine at Harvard Law School, Uh, when I said, how do you define politics? Uh, This wasn't even like, tell me about politics and money. This just came up, money came up kind of spontaneously in the interviews a lot. She called politics a necessary evil, unrealized potential. People in politics aren't courageous enough, she says. Who has a politician's ear? People with money, that's the ick factor. Dave, who uh, is one of your Kennedy School compatriots here, um, put his Harvard education to good use, I like to say. He said, I swear, I would risk capture by going into a political process as corrupted and sclerotic and generally putrescent as the American one. So full of money, really, that it ends up attracting people who understand that and don't care, or the few silly idealistic ones who think they can change the system from within. It's like a knife in the heart of a political scientist, really. But it's hard to say he's wrong. Dave, by the way, was really interested in politics, right? And would never run for office, he told me. Politics to him was labor organizing, right? And that's what I think he ended up doing. So, what I end up with is this three part argument that there's candidate deterrence effects where rewards do not outweigh costs of running for everyone, but women are more affected than men. Both because there are more costs, measurably more costs for women, and because women often feel the costs more keenly. Right? So even if there's the same costs, they are more sensitive to them. And lastly, women of color are the subgroup most likely to be affected by candidate determinants. So, in terms of everyone, you know, just one interesting kind of correlation that you can see over time right, is this, this Pew graphic on trust in government. Uh, it has just kind of plummeted. We are so much lower now, <laughs> it's almost like 2013. Uh, we had historic lows of about 13% on this, right? So to, it, it takes a special kind of person, it's a narrow and unrepresentative unre- sample who want to go into an institution that is so untrusted. right? Uh, but because of we're dead, the Women in Public Policy Program, let me jump right to the women effects. So. In particular, I promised you I'd get back to the, this piece. Uh, the question here is, do you agree or disagree that problems I most care about can be solved through politics? Right. So this is um, yeah. this <laughs> is one of my most favorite findings. And this might be, I, you know I'm hoping to do something else with these data further. Because one of the most important things, well, first, you can see, again, in all racial groups, very large gender differences. And this correlates very highly with, have you considered running for office? Not surprisingly. If you think politics solves problems, you're much more likely to think, I want to be there. right? There's also this racial difference within women, such that women of color and black women specifically are the group least likely to believe that politics can solve important problems. Right. So one of the questions I have, just for the future, you know, like some future, I'm trying to think of maybe experimental work or maybe somebody has ideas for the Q and A that you can tell me. But I'm trying to think like, can we change people's minds? What could you do? What kind of either information or experience could you give that might move these a little bit? Or what kind of experiences have these people had that have led them to think? Because, as far as I can tell, being able to solve problems by the holding of the office seems to be an integral part of wanting to run, right? That idea of political ambition. It, I think it's hard, to, yeah, it's hard to say. Schlesinger talked about it in, in terms of wanting to hold power, right? And we haven't, as political scientists, totally questioned that for a very long time. Where does it come from, though? I think a lot of it could come from your expectations of the rewards, which we don't often talk about in my field. So I'm trying to develop this idea more. But then the cost specifically, again, for women being higher. This is the question, uh, do you think Hillary Clinton, this was in the you know, this so 2010 to 2012 I was doing this. This was 2008 Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I said, do you believe the news media treated Hillary Clinton fairly? This is the percent saying yes. So again, the, the lighter bars are the men. The interesting thing, that these are all minorities of people. So not even men, right? the majority of men thought Hillary Clinton was not treated fairly. So people in general thought uh, this is not a fair political environment. But boy, there's these enormous gender differences, even among kind of people thinking it's unfair. Yeah? Do you
3: have additional data in which direction they think it was unfair?
1: That's a good question. Treated fairly, I didn't think to do that, but I thought, treated fairly by the news media. Um, Trying to think, Uh, the question was on a four point scale, and what this does is just aggregate, like, you know, very much agree or agree, and then disagree. So do you have an expectation that people would think she was given a benefit by the news media?
3: Maybe
1: yeah, this was long before Bernie um nope, I don't have additional data on that, but that's that's an interesting question the uh the two thousand eight campaign you yeah. know yeah i I think it was um I think the question was fairly clear what it was asking um, but yeah, I could test it again uh The expectation of discrimination is one of the things that I'm most interested in as a deterring kind of factor. So this is a little bit complicated, but what I've done here is try to figure out, does having some previous experience of discrimination lead you to expect that you will face it in the future? Right? So in particular, there were kind of a high level of people in my survey, as you can see from the previous data, kind of... Expecting unfairness in the political realm. And I wanted to know does their uh, kind of previous experiences predict that? This is a set of predicted probabilities um, for men and for women. So, women in general have a kind of already higher um, probability of expecting future discrimination or expecting that the political world would be unfair. But for both women and men, that expectation is structured by your own experience of discrimination also. So women who feel like they have experienced some or a lot of discrimination already, and that (coughs) includes women of color experiencing racial discrimination, are the most likely to believe that were they to run for office, they would face this additional burden, higher costs. So women of color in particular interested me for lots of reasons. But there was this kind of, um, on a lot of these questions that cluster together in terms of predicting political ambition, women of color (laughs) are different, and black women in particular. So this is trust in government. As I said, very few people trust government. These numbers are actually higher than the national average, because these are the people who might go into it. But uh, very low numbers of trust and no gender difference, right? The, the, this is, you can agree or disagree, you can trust the government to do what's right most of the time. Uh, so trust might be one factor. Solving problems, again, you saw before, large racial differences. And then perceived racial discrimination by the media. This <laughs> is the question here was Barack Obama treated fairly by the news media in 2008? Um, and uh, so here, interestingly, the white men thought he was right far more than any other Well, Hispanic men a little. One of the problems here, this, is a, this was my lowest end group. So the Hispanic men are a little variable, more variable. Uh, women in general saw discrimination more, whether it was sex or race discrimination. And it was the black women in particular who saw the highest levels of <laughs> discrimination for both women and people of color. So I was interested in this. I asked the, uh, the black students that I talked to questions particularly about racial discrimination, how they thought about it or experienced it. So I asked um, Jasmine, who you heard from before. She was a student at Harvard Law. I said, as you go through the world, do you kind of expect there are people out there that will treat you in a different way because of your race or your gender? It's an awkward question. I was trying not to prime, but also to get something that, that was true. And it's sometimes hard for a white girl to be asking this. So I had to signal that I was actually interested in her answer. You know, I had some of the black students look at me like, Do you really want to know? You know? (laughs) And I was like, Yeah, I want to know. Jasmine uh, says, Absolutely, I'm not naive to the fact. I certainly don't try to find a racial incident. Or a gender incident in every interaction I have with people. Are there times when I feel like there could be a racial or gender incident? Absolutely. This is my emphasis. She said, "It's like the antenna is up enough so that if something happens. It's like, wait a minute, but not up so much. I'm actually seeking so- something if the station's clear." By which I think she means she's not trying to find something, but she's always on guard. A little. She <laughs> she said she said at a different point it might have been a different black woman I was speaking to, but she, it was like, they kind of looked at me like, you know, oh, poor little white girl kind of thing, like, she goes, oh, honey, this is not my first time on the mirror go round <laughs> like, yeah, this is life. I had, um, Tamika was talking about how she found, and this is familiar to me from, I study and I teach W.B. Du Bois, who was you know, in the 19th century, um, a student at Harvard and found himself self-segregating to be around black people. There weren't other black people at Harvard and what he did is go into Boston. And uh, I think about that kind of story a lot. So um, Tamika and I were talking and and she was talking about how she kind of just felt more comfortable being around other black people at Harvard Law. And I said, you know, I was trying to get her to talk about why. She, she, and she said, "Well, there's a wariness." And I said, do, "Do you think that affects your behavior around white people?" And she said, "It's kind of hard. You feel like you have." And she started um, tearing up a little. And I, I think she was upset at herself, you know, for crying about it. But I was grateful to her. She said, "There's a weight on your shoulders all the time, mm-hmm. right?" And I feel like she said, uh, uh, "When I'm around other black people or as a woman, I can sort of let my guard down and be who I actually am." Uh, it. it I have to put up less of a front. I don't have to be like, I'm going to conquer the world. I can be myself. right? And another woman used the same word, weight on my shoulders. So I just thought that was kind of powerful it's the time data. That the Excuse law me.
2: school was having the royal must mm-hmm. fall and occupying the student lounge and um, all the
1: ra- and the racial the pro- and the I think that was a little later, but yeah. uh, okay. the, there right. have been yeah, long standing tensions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure, sure that right. it would be <laughs> but it might have. It might right. have. Obama being in the White House had yeah. already made race fairly yeah. salient, yeah. and I think just kind of the dailiness of life yeah. as a black student yeah. is just all a all part All of the incidents didn't come out you know, yeah. And neither, it you know, yeah. right? Yeah, no. And everything it, that we read about now, it's been there under the surface, I think. So that was there. Um, but I was grateful they would kind of trust me by talking about it.
3: Joy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, I always observe this kind of. Uh, kind of things and you know you know love go. And I I thought it is too much fear in the black uh, know people fear. I don't know fear. what they feel. I mean it's not really it's possible to have a good relationship with one. Oh God I hope so. Yes. No No, <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm, I love you,
1: know, you know what
3: it's not it's not a colour or anything. Them. the way we think. The way we with each other. You see? It's, it's I just, do. I understand this. Yeah.
1: The experience that this woman had made it easier for her not to be around white people sometimes. Yeah, and I totally is, understand. That, that is very, very bad. I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and lastly, I, I promise I would tell you a little bit about these data. The, the question of... Kind of do you have to contribute in the future to your family of origin maybe politics is also a little financially risky you might need to have more of a nest essay you might need to have more kind of stability on your own to be able to be kind of risky in this way um, so let me see what the question oh the the question here sorry this is do you is there an expectation that you're going to have to contribute to your family of origin um, and I define that as you know, kind of your immediate mothers, brothers, sisters, <coughs> siblings. Um, so not just your kind of family that you create, but where you come from, right? So there was some expectation on the part of some of the white students, but this is a minority, and you can see uh, majorities of the black students, and then especially for the, the women, the Hispanic and Asian women, this expectation that they contribute, right? And politics being riskier. Yeah, please. But
2: so this is interesting. So the higher percentages here are now women or men?
1: The the darker bars are yeah. the women.
2: Because I would think that that would go the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Because generally we expect men to, men be, to be providers. Yeah, of course they do make more because of the gender pay gap. Yeah. So I'm very surprised that in you know Hispanic Asian American families you would have an
1: expectation that the girls contribute more. Yes. I don't know entirely how to explain it, except that again, these might be a really odd and selected group of men of color. Yeah, that's my expectation. Okay. Uh, yeah, but that's it. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess it could also be you have to be around to take care of your yeah. Parents that, that might be the expectation. And your in-laws mm-hmm. and your extended clans. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's which is often time and kind energy. Of, it's not only the money part.
1: That's entirely true, and I know. Um, from Asian American kind of girlfriends, especially. This is an expectation that weighs heavily on them for the future. Um, and then, lastly, in terms of kind of the uh, back to that point about does politics either solve problems or does it bring happiness or authenticity? This is something I haven't totally figured out, but it's just this wonderful data from the interviews um, about kind of wanting to make a difference in the world or wanting to be authentic. And so these these quotes that I, I pulled out um, to try and figure out better, right? Elena wanted to do something socially important that was going to make her happy. And interestingly, <coughs> politics did not feel like that. I mean, one of my questions is, how do we make politics feel like that, socially important? How could we make politics feel for Elena like it was doing something useful that would make her happy? Jack really felt like, um, the, You lose your soul in a way (laughs) going into politics. This sense of um, being disconnected from the people you want to serve. I don't have a slide on it, but you can see also a kind of a a clear correlation of like interest in lower level office versus higher level office. Right, that people feel like they could make more of a difference in local or state government rather than at the national level. Uh, Melody just wanted to make this distinction, right? Politics is what gets in the way, but I like government. (laughs) And again, it's, I see, uh, I study government, I'm a political scientist, I see it differently. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, you know, I couldn't in these interviews, uh, but I'm thinking about for my next project, could I work with people like Melody and think about what is the, you know, what is that distinction? And uh, could we see politics more positively, right? To my mind, I study politics because it's it's the alternative to violence. Right? Politics is how we solve the most important problems, hopefully collectively, in a way where we don't kill each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what can we do to make people think about it in that way? It might correlate with political ambition more. There might be an issue of lawyers making the sub- the procedural versus substantive. I um, they think they're so sensitive. right. If you win
0: running for office, then you're in government, mm-hmm. and government, or you get appointed. Government is what our
1: result is, but. Politics is the process. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and politics so is the the nastiness <coughs> of it, right. or the sausage making, the horse right. trading. So if something appoints a yeah, judge or yeah, head, yeah, no. I had a, a lot of people. You know, I asked though, if you sure. could magically hold any position, right? Right, in the U.S. government right now at any level, what would you want to be? Huge numbers of people wanted to like run the EPA, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or they wanted to not be in electoral <laughs> politics, right? Um, And there is some evidence, uh, Kanthik and Wood have a good study that that they call um, kind of evidence of electoral aversion, particularly for women, that they want to be maybe in government without the politics. You know, to my mind, it it just kind of feeds into this idea of um, the costs of running. So I'm gonna end there, I just wanted to say, by ways of, it ends up being fairly depressing though, so whenever I speak, particularly to people who do candidate training or candidate recruitment, you know, I like to say, remember the words of Ann Richards, who reminded us, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, only backwards and into my <laughs> <laughs> Right? The history of women's activism in this country, right? Women, women are not genetically averse to politics. They've led massive social movements and changed the, the laws and the, the, the country. right? They have to have a good reason to do so. right? So my, I think one of the most important things I could say is, if you give women good reasons to run, they will work harder. <laughs> right? They will dance backwards and in high heels. right? What I don't think we've gotten to enough is what are the really good reasons and what could convince more women that it's worth those costs. All right, so that's what I got. <clears throat> what kinds of questions do you have? Or I can take the one from earlier about Okay, let's get a
0: couple out of the table. Can, can I put up one? <laughs> so when you talk about politics, like they're trying to avoid politics, I also wonder whether there's another distinction—not only distinction between government and politics, but also like the electoral race versus the politics of government. Yep. So like the the horse trading, and like we we solve that we we avoid war <laughs> through the politics. In the practice you know in the in the, in the practice of politics yeah. but it seems to me like what's aversive is this self-promoting yeah. you know just, there just seems to be a meaningful distinction there between like the work of government there's there's like government like bureaucracy right you know and then there's like politics within government which is yeah. the the hashing out of you know over interests and values and where we come out how we come out with policy right. Which is fundamentally political, sure. And then there's this other thing, which is the electoral process, right? So I don't know. It just seems like it just seems like politics might be too broad of a oh, completely
1: right. No, the term, the um, the fact is that you could frame, or, or we could do each of these things differently. I think in a way that would be make women less averse to wanting to run, right? So, if you think of politics as the way we solve problems together, there's some evidence already that yeah, all right, more women are interested. If you think of, um, or if we did elections differently, right, in a way where it wasn't just, and we have evidence from other countries that do this, right? You are asked to stand for office. It's not you just shamelessly self promoting, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I was asked to stand on, the, on behalf of my party. That's I think a, a better way to do it, and there's lots of electoral mechanisms that other countries have tried to get more women in as candidates. And uh, interestingly, you know, there's all these kinds of workarounds that men usually find to make those not work as well. But It's a different topic. Um, <laughs> but also, Jenny Mansbridge and I have been talking about <coughs> Like, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I just think like the electoral mechanism itself is, a, in a lot of ways, a fundamentally flawed. Process. What if we had a different way of selecting? What if we selected rather than elected? Like, um, if anybody knows about the, um, the Canadian Citizens Assembly example, of they were trying to decide should they change the Constitution in the way that um, uh, like should districts be multi-member, kind of fundamental changes to the democratic process. And they decided having anybody currently in office or having people run for office, both of those would distort kind of the incentives of the people there. What they really needed was like a jury, right? They did a random drawing for a hundred, <laughs> you know, assembly members, and they ended up with a, you know, highly representative, really hardworking bunch that worked for like a year to understand different electoral systems and recommend changes. Right. So the the idea of random selection. Which is an ancient Greek idea of democracy and how you would pick leaders. Uh, Yeah, we don't use much except for juries. But you know, I've been thinking about could we use that more? It makes me nervous (coughs) to have power distributed according to these kind of awful, distorted processes, and only have the people be able to get in who most want the power <laughs> it seems distorted on multiple levels like we're not getting in any way a representative sample and even the women who do run are highly unrepresentative of women as a group not just in terms of race and socioeconomics but um, kind of personality wise right could we use random selection i think that'd be kind of cool <laughs> anyway the electoral mechanisms, though, I think is the next frontier of yeah, research yeah. on this. It could be um, that, that women are more averse to uh, just the process of self promotion, which would make sense because we punish women for it. <laughs> right. I mean, Not like they're of, being right, dumb right. about it. Women are actively punished, as yeah. Hannah and others have found, for negotiating for a salary, say. Mm-hmm. Right. So that the. the um, the women in business advice of always just lean in. Women just need to lean in more. It's women's fault that they're not kind of happy. No, no. <clears throat> women have really good reasons for often not leaning in, and they have to do with kind of not just social incentives, but kind of you can be punished in financial ways as well. Um, so the expectations are different there. So ele- there might be electoral aversion. Um, there seem to be differences. Some exciting new research. Melissa Deckman um, has been working on. Some others. Uh, the idea of kind of gender based differences in responses to things like incivility or <coughs> acrimony, right? So, if the way that we do politics is this contentious, um, disrespectful shouting at each other thing, women are less likely to want to do it. You lose, actually, I think, good people in general, but women more than men. So, yeah. I don't have good answers from this, but there's some good research coming out on that.
4: Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about differences in party and how that could speak to the deterrence aspect. Um, so I'm particularly interested in the way that the parties approach recruitments of candidates okay. and whether some of these <laughs> findings might be explained through that lens. Um, particularly since you probably have a serious overrepresentation of Democrats, which is fine. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. But um, I guess where I'm coming from is that I think that a lot of women of (coughs) color sort of feel like there's only one party for them. And so that sort of might influence how they approach the question of entering into politics. And for white women, that might also kind of influence the way that they approach thinking about entering politics. I just don't know how to think about it. I I wonder kind of what your reactions are. Yeah.
1: I think I can't, with these data, speak to it too much. But the um, the Republican women book that I've just been working on has yeah. a lot to say. Um, Tell us more. Yeah. The, the kind of ideological bases of the parties are are, are deeply divergent on identity issues mm-hmm. right now, right? Such that there are possibilities and institutions set up for women to raise money. By virtue of being women, <laughs> and because we need more women in politics, right? So Emily's list and other, you know, huge kind of fundraising um, sources can use the idea of identity politics and the underrepresentation of women in politics as a reason to get more women in politics and uh, to help fund women in politics in a way that you can't at all on the Republican Side, mm-hmm. right? The message, women are underrepresented in politics and we need to elect more women, does not resonate, and in fact, often makes Republican donors hostile. Mm-hmm. Because the expectation and the, the kind of um, uh, rhetoric in the Republican Party is we're issuing the, the group basis of identity, and instead everybody's an individual. Right, You can get a little bit of leverage, I think, as a Republican woman talking about some discrimination. And that ind- discrimination hurts people as individuals because it depresses, you know, the people of merit who should be, you know, it, it disrupts meritocracy. <laughs> it's not as powerful a way of raising money as the Democrat women have. Uh, there's also, perhaps because of this ideological basis, but also because of the kind of longer-standing nature of the Democratic women Pacts, there's this deeply lopsided kind of universe of organizations available to help Democrat women as candidates versus Republican women. And as Danielle Thompson and others are finding, the um, kind of the existence of the Tea Party and their kind of just incredible success at systematically eliminating moderates mm. <laughs> has meant that <coughs> women in the Republican Party who tend to be at least a little more moderate than men you know, actively are deterred from running. Um, and even if they do run, in, they are kind of eliminated through primaries, such that it's kind of almost impossible to be elected as a Republican woman unless you are hyper-conservative right now, right? So the landscape for Republican women, I think, is, is really bleak. It is um, it, it's far more advantageous to run as a woman in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the stats on that, women in the Democratic Party now raise the same amount of money as men. And yeah. Emily's list has gone a huge way toward equalizing that. It's not totally equal still, though, right? So one study has found, yeah, you, know, you can raise the same amount of money, but women still have to work twice as hard, <laughs> make twice as many phone calls, to raise that same amount. It's not that it's equal, but I think running, uh, if you're in the Democratic Party, it's far easier so I don't know that my students in this sample would have known that. But I do know that you know, I think there's a palpable sense on the Repo- part of Republican women that I talked to, that the environment was going to be really difficult for them. Right? I think they are more deterred. I didn't, I kind of wish I had, but I didn't place as much emphasis on them in this study. But I think if I compared Republican women and women of color, I think that would be about the same levels of candidate deterrence right now, because the costs are just so much higher for Republicans. Data. Um, but yeah, it's, it's some really interesting work coming out on Republican women specifically. So, somebody, oh, one sec, he had a question back there. Yeah, so this might be silly, but I'm kind of looking for something positive in this. And so, yeah, by all means, <laughs> never silly to be positive. Uh, you mentioned in the speech that women see. Um, Running for office is a net negative experience because yeah. the rewards aren't greater than the costs, and it seems like there are very legitimate reasons
3: on both ends. I think so the benefits. costs are very high and the rewards can be very low. Yeah. And women specifically also know that
0: even if they get elected and overcome all the, the hurdles to getting into office, are they going to be in a body that's about twenty percent female, eighty percent male? Um, so, any trepidation that a woman might have for running for office seems very valid in my eyes. So, sure. if you were a woman who was
1: thinking about running for office and you approached. Emily's List, or She Should Run, and you you just like voiced your trepidation. then what could they say to you to be like, yes, this is why you really should follow through with this and actually run for office? Right, and that takes me back to, oh, I'm so sorry she left. I didn't get to her question soon enough. But the question of like, right, (coughs) in some ways it's a little difficult. I published this book that says there's really good reasons women wouldn't run, and now we're in this inside of women looking to run for office. So groups like Emily's List, She Should Run, Emerge America, uh, you know the the groups that train right women right now, even uh, that train women to run for office, ready to run, are kind of experiencing this like doubling, sometimes tripling of interest in their programs. So, what could explain that, and what can they do? Such a fabulous question because we don't totally know, but we know that they're doing something effective, right? So one of my next projects, it's you know, like I said at the very end. If you give women good reasons to run, right, can we quantify uh, that? Can I put some kind of empirical data behind what it means to have good reasons to run? Your point about, um, you know, that it might be seen as a cost to be kind of entering a majority institution as a minority, whether it's race or gender. In some ways, yeah, it might be seen as a cost. If you could put a different frame on it, sometimes it's encouraging, right? You can help break the glass ceiling. Yeah. If you suggest to women that they could be like a voice for their communities in a way that wouldn't, these they wouldn't be represented unless they're there. Um, so I have some data from uh, these women's candidacy candidacy training programs, right? That's actually again weird sample, right? But for those women who are already thinking about running, the idea that they could be a voice for an underrepresented community—that's a positive. Rather than a negative, they can help break the glass ceiling. It could be a positive thing. So the question of what these training programs or what can recruiters do, uh, I think that's you know that's the next frontier. So there's an edited volume I'm working on right now. Um, it's called I think it's something like Good Reasons to Run, right? And I've been thinking about um, experimentally, like could we figure out, you know, there uh, there's um, People who do work, Clementine was telling me about her work with role models earlier or exemplars, right? Of women in science can convince younger women, oh, I could go into All right, so what are the things that we could do? We know role models and mentors can have an effect. We know that um, uh, kind of uh, explaining better the, the ways in which maybe the discrimination is not as bad as you think. <laughs> or you can get access to money, and here's how. Right, we know that those kinds of explanations uh, do seem to decrease the fear of the trepidation about running. Um, and there's something happening right now. So in answer to the, the earlier question, right, the combination of Trump's election, <coughs> followed swiftly by the Me Too movement lately, seems to create a moment. I think of um, exasperation, <laughs> hope. Uh, anger, whatever it is, it's an exciting moment. And I think it's paired with something I didn't even think of as a reward, right? But that I think a whole lot of not just women, but young people are realizing that a possible reward of running for office that we've not had to think about for a long time is just the idea of democracy continuing. (laughs) Right. Do you like living in a democracy? Mm-hmm. Yes, because it can go away. <laughs> yeah. And it can go away. If you're not there, that's a reward, boy, did I not think to ask about in my survey. But from what I can tell anecdotally, talking to people right now, especially young people, that's a motivating force that we could exploit more. Right? That seems to be driving people into politics right now. I'm sorry things had to get so bad for us to like, you know, uh, find that, but I think it's a useful tool. I, hope- I am hopeful. I am at this moment. Uh, there are some structural things about the way that we do money in campaigns, the gerrymandering of districts to protect incumbents, the way that primaries are kind of selecting the most extreme candidates right now, like things that are, I think, disastrous to US politics um, that are not going to go away soon. So. I keep focusing on the psychological rewards of politics because I think if you think unfortunately the structural costs are high, what are the possible rewards that could counter those structural costs where I'm headed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, please.
1: Just a quick question. I don't know if you mentioned it, but conditional unrunning, like what what do you know anything about how successful women are? Sure. Because that could also be kind of a motivating factor right now. Yeah. It, it so one thing women. you can do to motivate <laughs> women is say, When women run, we have the data on this. Women win as often as men do. Okay, they do. The data are very clear on that point. I fudge it a little, though. I mean, really, (laughs) don't tell. (laughs) When I talk to women candidates or people who could be candidates, Mm -hmm. that's what I say. As a social scientist, the selection effect of only the best women running means that they should win more. (laughs) Yeah. And so yeah, it suggests idea. to me that there is still a double standard and there's still discrimination. Because they don't win at the rate that they should, given we know they're better quality, usually, when they do run. Yeah. And they win in so, equal numbers, as Sean was saying, mm-hmm. open seat to
0: open seat, That's right. incumbent to incumbent, and challenger to challenger. And almost all incumbents are male.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so women, right. Yeah. So you don't. I I try not to encourage women to run against entrenched male opponents by saying, "Go for it, honey, you can do it." That's really unfair. Her chances are not good. But open seats women do extraordinarily well, and that's where we need to focus. I think we don't have enough of them, right? Because the the gerrymandering is so severe, and districts are not very competitive. Different talk. (laughs) Joy in them. I I just wondered. I I feel I, I feel and I understand
3: also you have a lot of uh, not uh, very many but uh, brilliant scientist woman. Yes. Brilliant uh, president woman. Yes. Especially for, for example our president. Yes. She did extremely beautiful she did. And we have such people, they just you just see their work. They they just quietly do things and this kind of woman can lead the world, you don't think? Yes. But uh, we, we need to encourage only the brilliant ones, you know, because it yes. a lot of competition, uh, a lot of work, a lot of fun. Uh, you know. I, I know. I'm going to disagree
1: a little, though. <laughs> I, 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 am. I, I, I understand your point, and I'm with you, and I love seeing brilliant women. But let me yeah. give you a different um, uh, kind of thought here. Bella Abzug, who's one of my great heroes of women in politics, right, used to say, We'll know we have equal we have equality of women in politics when a female schlemiel can get as elected as easily as a male shlemiel, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, the the fact is any kind of mechanism that you use to choose who's going to be in power will often misfire and get people who are not great. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just a fact of, of life. We're misfiring a lot more than I'd like to see with our current system because it's biased in so many ways, right? One of the interesting, in fact, from the, um, is it the Swedish study, there's a there's a European study that's really interesting. It's called um, quotas in the case of the mediocre male, right? One of the things, one of the great effects of quotas for women in whatever country they were studying um, in Europe was <laughs> it eliminated some of the mediocre men, because they weren't as good. They weren't good enough to compete with it. So I just love that idea. But I'm not averse to mediocre women being in politics, as long as we also have mediocre men. right? And I think we expect women to be so fabulous and brilliant all the time. And it's not fair. We don't expect the same as men. right? Well, the I mean, the double standard is most evident to me in terms of Trump and Hillary. It was just an astounding kind of difference in what counted as qualified, right? Uh, But I think you're seeing it now in terms of who's talked about for the the Democratic nomination in 2020. Somebody said to me uh, something, you know, Gillibrand, well, she's not very bright or something. that uh, anybody you know off the street is brighter than our current president <laughs> right anybody who could like use three <coughs> words in a sentence so that's not my concern i, I don't i don't <coughs> think it has to be just the brilliant women and i'm interested in a representative democracy well, there's I, a lot yeah. of not bright people that's okay <laughs> they can <laughs> be this over here hold on yeah,
0: yeah. so over here and, then, and then. so
2: so back to you know these women that you talk to who are smart enough to run, but see the cost is too high. Absolutely. Yeah. Is it possible to engage very credible men in politics yep. who want more women yes. to succeed, and who truly believe that they have seen women in their the discussions they've had on major decisions, bringing so much more to the table. Absolutely. To just engage them in this big movement of yes. going around. So let's say. Every month there was a session here, right. one at the Divinity School, one at the Law School, the one at the Kennedy yeah. School, right. where one of these really credible men in yes. politics was to speak about why this is the moment for women to run. Oh, I love it. And yeah. then just... These are the people who can make this happen. And then just talk, <laughs> talk from the heart yeah. about when we were making that big decision in this crisis,